So we'd like to explore a little bit this important area of awareness as requested to give some small explanation as far as I understand of the terms and uh, a little bit of where the priority is. Often teachings as it were point to a beyond but this tends to make something of a gap so it could appear in this way of looking here is my life I'm passing through my life with all the changes that I have to deal with it's not all there is to life and there is something which is transcendent to it which goes beyond it which I might call <coughs> liberation I might call nirvana I might call finding God coming to reality or whatever but this makes the gap between what is in the immediacy of the present of things and something beyond I feel it's far more valuable and important to approach things from an exploration of intimacy with and what can be seen and discovered therein so we can say and I think I'm quoting the Buddha fairly accurately here when asked what is all, what is everything and the response that was given is being given is the senses, the seeing and what is seeing the hearing and the ears and what is heard the nose, what is smelt, the tongue, what is tasted uh, the touch and what is touched and uh, what's going on inside, what we have contact with feelings and thoughts and perceptions and memories and ideas etc and this is our world this is everything for us what passes through the senses and what goes on from <coughs> consciousness with its content with what we have contact with to view something outside of that is regarded as a view as an unprovable perception that something is outside of that it's a belief it's a, a trust it's a, a metaphysic so the all for us is eyes and its object and the seeing of it ears and sound smell nose and smell etc and somewhere in the midst of all of this we need to explore well and deeply is there something in the midst of all of this that I'm not realising, not made real for one? There isn't a realisation about. Am I so infatuated with this world of change, of colour and sound and smell, taste and touch that I just live in that and I can't see deeper than that? And once that interest and that uh, inquiry or that exploration starts, it brings us much more to an intimacy and I'm letting go of looking outside of my intimate moment with life. And saying, whatever is to be discovered, whatever is to be realised, is going to be realised in this and not somewhere else. So then I start to, as it were, to boil everything down to very basic factors 
very, we might say, very basic elements. I'm not concerned with what I was. I'm not concerned with my personality. I'm not concerned with who or what I might or will be in the future. Just not concerned with all that. I'm just concerned with this immediate relationship that I have with this moment of life. <coughs> and to see what I can discover in it. So when that comes down to the very basic factors, and I kind of strip everything away, and all the constructs I have about who I am, or what other people think of me, or my personality, when I strip it all away, then I come down to the basic factors. And the basic factors are that there is an element which is called being conscious. I'm a conscious human being. And being conscious means I have conscious, I am conscious of something. And being conscious of something means the consciousness, means being conscious, has a contact with something. And the contact with something, some things vary. <laughs> I have contact with my feelings and my emotions. I have contact with my thoughts. I have contact with my ideas and my memories, and my views and my opinions and my plans. And I am conscious of the world around. So I have contact with what's around. So consciousness, being conscious, helps to reveal... What's going on? Dead person can't be, reveal anything. Person's dead. In deep sleep, there's or coma, there is consciousness, <coughs> but it's <coughs> it's minimal. It's the consciousness of just being alive. It's minimal, but there is life there, and therefore there is some consciousness there. But it's minimal. But in the shift, consciousness is energized. So if you and I are asleep, and then someone shakes us, the consciousness is energized. And in the energized, ah, oh, I come into contact with my feelings, my experiences, I come into contact with the world, and the world and the consciousness appear together. The world shows itself as it is because of being conscious. The very senses that I have determine, help to determine how I see the world. And they seem quite different. The world of sight and the world of sound, they have a connection, but they, it's all part of the, what is, the Buddha said, the all there. So consciousness is an element of a sentient being, <coughs> in this case a human being, which helps to reveal something, helps to show. And when I take some interest in what I look at, I say I give it more attention. I give the breath more attention. I give what's going on in my mind or my life more attention. <coughs> I'm actually bringing more energy and more interest into the consciousness. I say to myself, I want to be a conscious human being. So I'm taking some of the energy, the attention, the involvement of the object and putting it onto being conscious of it. Quite often, I'm, I as a human being, I'm so identified with the object, I think that's who I am. 
Let's say I'm a happy person, identify with happiness. I'm a confused person, identify with confusion person. Um, I am uh, uh, an owner of certain items. I am identified with what I own, etc. When it less involvement in the object and taking more interest in being conscious, that is a shift of priority. And it's a hugely significant shift to wish to be a really conscious human being. <coughs> and that helps to take some of the pressure off all my mind states. Off obsessing about this, that, and the other. I'm interested to be really conscious. In Pali language, for a moment, consciousness is a very bare factor. It's vinyan. Very bare. It's just happening. Animals and birds have vinyan. Have bare, bare consciousness. You and I experience bare consciousness. Sometimes it's very bare when we're just running on instinct, just running on habit, when we're asleep, when we're very unaware, when we're in a very much in a blind spot. Still consciousness, but it's very, very bare. It's just functioning along there. But when the interest and the energy and the vitality enters into consciousness, we become more conscious. And then, more conscious, it becomes sati, means we become more mindful. Quite often in Dharma language, I and others will kind of, will use these words somewhat interchangeably. So I say, consciousness, consciousness of, meaning mindfulness <coughs> of, mindful of being with. We just heard in the walk through the uh, forest. It was an exercise in being really conscious of taking one step at a time. Or in our language, being really mindful of taking one step at a time. Sometimes, again, with the mindfulness, we may not necessarily be really clear about what's going on. The thief, entering, who's a burglar, going into somebody's home, has a degree of mindfulness that most meditators would envy. <laughs> One is sitting downstairs watching reality TV, while upstairs the reality is there's a burglar who is stealing one's prize, whatever, jewellery or whatever. And the burglar moving upstairs, mindfulness is far higher level than what we had in the forest. <laughs> Mindful of every sound, every moment, every step, as he goes and steals the items. But, does not have sati, that's mindfulness, sampajanya, which means clear comprehension. Understand? So, comprehension. To comprehend. To really know what is going on. Sati, sampajanya. So, when mindfulness 
is accompanied with a clear, clearly comprehending what's going on. I call this awareness. Mm-hmm. Consciousness is conscious, it is energized, it is present, and there is a clear comprehension of what is taking place. And therefore one is aware of trust and lack of trust. One is aware of the intentions which are at work. One is aware of the influential factors that are arising, affecting the awareness. Then, with this awareness, or with this mindfulness with clear comprehension, (laughs) the same thing, this contributes significantly to having a wise or clear relationship with the world. It contributes to watching our ego, to understanding clinging and holding and possessiveness, etc. In this, being a very conscious human being, very mindful human being, with clear comprehension which is there, as I said earlier, the world of objects is important that means sight, sound, smell, taste and touch is important to the subject. The world of objects is established as an object by a subject called consciousness sometimes called myself sometimes called who I am, more precisely, who I think I am. One of the vulnerabilities in the teachings is for a conclusion to be drawn, and I hear this in some of the Eastern traditions, in which the view is established, I am not the body because it's an object. So I can't be the body. I am not the body because I'm not the mind or the mental state because I can look at it. So I can't be what I look at. It's an object. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. Therefore, who I am is pure consciousness. Who I am is mindfulness with clear comprehension. I can't place mindfulness or clear comprehension, or or pure consciousness, or awareness in front of me. I can't get it, the subject, in front. Everything else I can do, I can say, oh, there's there's this mind state, there are these thoughts, there are these feelings, there are these sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, look at everything. But the subject, so-called subject, can't get in front. So some traditions therefore draw the conclusion you are pure consciousness. That's who you are. You are pure awareness. This is your true nature. Oh no it isn't. Oh no it isn't. This is to rest in pure awareness which is beautiful. To rest in pure consciousness I'm using the words interchangeably now or mindfulness with clear comprehension, is beautiful to rest in that, and not to feel lost in the objects. 
not to feel um, I am these objects which I give attention to. It's a beautiful thing. But the eye has arisen and it has drawn the conclusion I am pure awareness. All things rest in awareness. All objects come to appearance through consciousness. Therefore, I am pure consciousness. I say that view is a view from one who has simply not gone deep enough. All right, let's say questions. <laughs> Don't want to make it too easy, do I? <laughs> or responses. Is it uh, not like that you just mentioned? Mm -hmm. Because in meditation, subject and object is one. It can't be divided in dualistic. Mm. Right. So, again, for those of you who are uh, listening, because important question there, it isn't easy to follow, so one has to remember this. Sometimes, I, before I touch the point, we listen and it goes straight over the head. Why not? Why not? Just let it go. We listen and it only lands between here and here. Well, why not? <coughs> Etc. We listen, and it might touch some feeling response inside. Wow, really getting a sense of what's being explored. Why not? <laughs> and sometimes it touches some other place which brings about some realization that makes a real difference. Why not? We don't have control. We can go anywhere it likes. What words? We can go above, we just land here. Uh, here or whatever as long as we don't draw the conclusion it is because of what is being said <laughs> nothing to do with it things just go where they go so in this case objects are established in this phenomenal life by a subject who establishes them the, sub the objects establish the subject. I can't have objects without a subject. And I can't have a subject without an object. It is not possible. It makes the terms meaningless. Therefore, my life appears to be an ongoing relationship, as Michael was pointing out. An ongoing relationship moving back and forward between the subject and the object. And I think it is fair to say, as Michael and I discussed, fair to say that objects affect the subject. You may all may be completely bored. You may be drifting and waiting for tea. I go like this. Who can say, nah, not interested to listen to it. No choice. No, 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 no. It can't be blocked out there, there. So the object called the bell has just influenced the consciousness of everybody in this room because they just entered it. What may arise may be some response to it. 
and then that might become the object of your interest. How did I respond when Christopher hit the bell? What was the state of mind? Was it, wow, gosh, it really does show how little control I have. Subject influences the object, object influences the subject. In this, without looking outside of it, is all the great discovery. No, no beyond, we don't need it. It's right in this dynamic. The subject and the object is a useful construction that the mind has made. The subject and the object is a useful interpretation that the mind has made about how we believe or think things really are. And therefore she said, Jewel, is it? Is this? Do we live in subject-object? Do we? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, you made a distinction between sati, mindfulness, yes. and sampachana, yeah. your knowledge. Yeah. As far as I remember from the basic mindfulness suttas of the Buddha, yeah. sati, patana, sutta, mm-hmm. sati, sutta, they only talk about sati, mindfulness. And there's one little chapter about sampachana, but the progress of insight, as yeah. it's described within the suttas, yeah. culminating in definite knowledge or ultimate knowledge, mm-hmm. both suttas, this is mentioned as the final yeah. uh, aim of it, or, yeah. or realization. Yeah. And this seems to come about just mm-hmm. through the cultivation of sati. All right. Mm-hmm. So sati seems to have these different steps, and as far as I understand it, you said at one point this bugler mm-hmm. at the top of the room has far higher degree of mindfulness than the person below. And this kind of mindfulness, which is flexible, and completely independent mm-hmm. of motivation, I think in Buddhist definition would be momentary concentration, mm-hmm. which is one achievement of mindfulness, yes. but mindfulness never stops with it. No. The goal of mindfulness always seems to be to come to an increasing understanding of the three marks of existence, yeah. anatta, mm-hmm. as impermanence, dukkha and anatta. Yeah. So, and often it, it is defined or restricted Mm-hmm. to this momentary concentration, which is not its ultimate goal, as far yeah. as I understand. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we just go to the, the text a, a little bit there. Um, when I read the text, though there is je- reference to bhavana, to development, development of mindfulness, etc. And that is an important factor and it does give the practitioner the encouragement to develop their practice, as we say. And this Sampajanya, this Sati uh, Sampajanya, <coughs> any practice will, which is, in de- is developing will naturally bring more comprehension. It will bring more understanding about change it would bring more understanding about the unsatisfactoriness of clinging or being identified with change. And it will remind us just how impersonal this whole process is. Just going back to the... Just there, regardless of what the self, wish of the self is. So, greater and uh, clear comprehension about life 
will help us significantly to be able to deal with impermanence, to see unsatisfactoriness that's wrapped up in it, and to see its non-self characteristic, meaning how impersonal it is, the events of life. Sometimes going with our wishes, sometimes not going with our, with our wishes. So from a place of sati, mindfulness, will, for a human being interested in developing herself or himself, will come to clearer comprehension. But there is a point, and, and I think this, see both from the text here and also from working with people, that there is a point where the interest in developing oneself itself, the importance of it gets less. And there is a sense of one's potential as a human being to come to profound understanding and realization right now. So the idea, the valuable one, which may have started us off, which says, I really want to develop and grow as a human being, can, for some people, change to a sense of one's potential as a human being to have real deep, profound realization in the moment. And, therefore, the resources of the Dharma give that opportunity. And that's so clearly stated (coughs) in the teachings of the Buddha, time and time again, when, at the end of the discourses, or in the Satipatthana discourse, he speaks of the realization that came right there and then. And so deep that the interest of myself developing actually drops away. That immediacy of realization is the priority uh, there. And therefore, Sati leads to Sati Sampajanya. And the sense of developing as a human being is important, but the teachings don't give, or don't have a great emphasis on the progress of insight, or the progress of meditation. The Satipatthana discourse, which is the encouragement for you and I to look at the body, the feelings, the states of mind, and the Dharma, is not a progress approach. It's a direct seeing into those things which affect our life significantly. Called the bodily life, called the feeling life, called the states of mind life, called the dharma of life. Yes, anyone, please. Yes. In the inquiries, uh, yes. what was on the tip of my tongue was to say uh, impermanence mm. is. Uh, not changing. Mm. Because you asked what the yes. change mm. So I thought, yeah, change or impermanence doesn't change. Mm-hmm. But then you abandoned it. Very quickly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> if I understood correctly. Mm. So, um, can you yeah, sure, a little. If absolutely everything is changing, that the true nature of things is absolute change, which some people will have the view. No, 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 no question. It puts us in a very, very difficult position as human beings. 
Firstly, I cannot rely on anything. I cannot rely on any insight. I can't rely on any understanding. I can't rely upon uh, uh, any discovery because it's going to change. Therefore, no insight has any authenticity to it. It's going to change. And, um, the, that I am trapped in this world of change and it's just going to push me along where it will and I am helpless in the face of change. <coughs> if there's only change going on, there can be no liberation, there can be no truth, which is steady and reliable, there can be no uh, uh, reality, which uh, is present, because I'm just pulled along by these circumstances of change. So, one can say accurately, and this is kind of keeping the door open, one can say accurately, everything which I have contact with changes. Either the object changes, which it does of course, or my way of looking at it changes. And I'm so spellbound by it, I can't imagine from the way the world shows itself to me that it may be some other way altogether. So, when Michael and I were uh, talking or making the reference again to, I think, yesterday, um, the analogy of uh, the blind person touching the elephant, we can be totally convinced this is how it is. It's a wall, it's a very rough wall of touching, completely convinced we can persuade everybody. It doesn't mean anything. It's just how I perceive. So, if I can hold the world of change rather lightly, maybe I can have something, discover something which is indestructible. Totally indestructible. Because I hold the world lightly enough. How the response comes from the human being is the power of it. And what I mean by that is, if I listen, and this goes over the head, as I said earlier, goes over the head. If it's just mental, it's just a good idea, etc. They may touch my emotional life, but it would be rather brief. But if I realise, that means to discover the real, something, and it's authentic, come back to the dialogue with Michael, and it's authentic, it is liberating. <coughs> the nature of it is liberating. And this liberating discovery, in the midst of things, is indestructible. Therefore, it's not subject to change. Can't be lost. Everything else can be lost. It can't be lost. And the authenticity of it from the human being is, in the sense of the discovery of it, that there is something which is, has truth with it. There's only one truth, and this truth is indestructible.
There's only one liberation, and this liberation is the same thing, is indestructible, and therefore it is not subject to the field of time. And it's right in the midst of things. It's not beyond. It's right in the midst of things. And that's why we have to treat the way we perceive the world rather lightly. We have to treat presence and absence rather lightly. Life and death rather, rather lightly. We have to treat consciousness lightly. And awareness lightly. Not, not give it this indestructible state uh, affirmation. Truth and liberation is indestructible. <laughs> whether I'm aware or whether I'm not, truth and liberation could care less. It doesn't matter to it. Whether I'm awake or I'm asleep, whether I'm mindful or half-mindful, whether I'm clear comprehension or I don't have it, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, it's not going to make any difference to truth. But awareness is dependent on being alive. It's dependent on a human being. It's dependent on feelings and thoughts and body. It's a human thing. The book's not aware. Not even a decent one. <laughs> it's a human construct, awareness. Yes, anyone, please. Yes, what, what that's it. What do you call it then? Everything becomes a construct. Yes. If there is a relation from a subject, uh, yeah, from just perceiving life without owning it. I mean, just to call it life is uh, also, I mean, it's yes. uh, also conception of the, the it concept is. of it. And the difficulty, it's an important, uh, significant difficulty. If I call it one thing, so I call it life, because the word, a word, tends to carry its opposite, or its complement, then I could find myself holding to life as against non-life there. If I call it presence, which some will do, then I may have fear or agitation or worry about something becoming non-present. No matter how much I hold to presence, if I call it being, the same issues about not being will arise. Because it's back into the world of the duality. So the tradition has rather wisely been rather careful about making a word. Yet not to be afraid of it, afraid of it. The Buddha has used more than 30 words. And the reason for using some 30 words, infinite, immeasurable, truth, uh, reality, 
Um, deathless. Deathless, birthless, ageless, painless, the bliss, the true security, the authentic. These are some 30, 30, 30 words altogether. And part of the reason for that, nirvana, obviously, another, another. liberation, another one, emancipation, another one. No, 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 no. The part of the reason for that, as a skillful means, is so that we don't grasp onto a concept, a word, and put it outside of this immediate field and say, I'm going to attain to this, and this will get me out of the world and out of this suffering and out of samsara. So it's not unlike religion, which is often settled on a word, usually God. He hasn't given, hasn't made that, hasn't made that because it becomes an object to reach out and grasp onto, to get out of this world. Even though the tradition has made that mistake, often with Nirvana especially. So it's much more, the radical and beautiful view is, there is an intimacy with life, the deeper the intimacy with it, the greater the access to a kind of unspoken truth, an un or an inexpressible truth, which is liberating and freeing, and there's just one truth and it has no name to it. The unconditioned. And yeah, uh, thank you. The unmade, the unborn, the unconditioned. We we we've got must have at least ten or fifteen of them now. Yes, anyone, please. Yes. I, I'd like to come back to awareness. Yes, do, yes. Uh, nice. Uh, I'm grateful you said that still is a, it is an important thing and a beautiful thing because in, in one of the small groups we, uh, we discussed this among us and uh, somehow it came out that uh, all of us were um, fans of awareness. <laughs> all right. <laughs> because we had all made the experience that. Uh, somehow that have changed our life and for some time yes. it was really important and, and maybe the view had arisen that this is it but I agree, uh, awareness is subject to change and it, it's not mm. okay, but still um, from, uh, from the practice of uh, especially of choiceless awareness that's one practice we, yes. we uh, I learned from you uh, yes. one of the practices we, we put together here on the trees yes. uh, the experience is that um, for one thing, uh, it seems to be that this something happens with the subject-object yes. in choiceless awareness. Uh, one observation is that um, this kind of choiceless awareness seems to be self-reflective. Yes. I can be aware of being aware. Yes. So mm -hmm. Still subject-object, mm. but something there is some kind of shift that comes from kind of better. No? And uh, the other experience is that <coughs> the sense of the I is mm. still present, yes. but, but it seems to get somewhat smaller or weaker mm. in meditation, nice. in the practice of choice. So yes. It's still there, but somehow it seems to be softened. Mm. Lovely. The, in that um, expansive world, choice-less awareness. One is not intentionally not choosing an object. Choice-less awareness. As you say, in that uh, choiceless uh, awareness, 
what the object is that arises to it, which appears in the choiceless awareness, when the choiceless awareness is well established, doesn't matter too much. How different that is from the self. What comes to the self, when the self is lost in awareness or mindfulness, really matters. I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this, I approve of this, I don't approve of that, this is good, this is bad, etc. This is in the world of the self. But when the eye is light, as you pointed out, and is not in wanting this and not wanting that, choosing this and not choosing that, that natural expansive awareness is naturally allowing things to come and pass. Choiceless awareness. The awareness and the spaciousness which goes with it is beautiful because it does allow things just to unfold in their own way, just very happy with it. To repeat a little bit before, this awareness which is so precious and so beautiful and so magnificent an element for a human being does reveal more than just a relationship with objects. The choiceless awareness, choiceless awareness, has the potential to reveal something greater than the object and greater than the choiceless awareness. This is the beautiful thing. The choiceless awareness reveals objects. And when it's choiceless, they're just flowing. And we feel, well, life is just unfolding itself. It's just flowing. It's just dependently arising. And that sense of I, me, and my is very light in it. It's beautiful. So you really feel, well, that receptivity, that clarity, and that openness there. And in such a lovely awareness, <coughs> where objects are not impacting so strongly, this very same awareness has the potential to reveal much more than just impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and non-self. But sometimes, even at the subtle level, we, we're still looking at impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, non-self. Or we're just appreciating this choiceless awareness, this very calm abiding, this relaxed state of being, this sense of openness, and radiance. We're just appreciating it. It's beautiful. But it's not liberation. It's not liberation. Yet right there, with this awareness, the precious element. So our advisor friends, are, it's beautiful what they say, and a wonderful reminder they do help us to let go of this idea of progress and, and development and continual working on oneself. I think there's a very important message from the <coughs> Advaita non-dual satsang tradition. However, just to therefore conclude the abiding in this pure awareness is our true nature. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Yes? Uh, it, it reminds me 
of uh, one uh, expression from Sogya Rinpoche. Sogya Rinpoche. Yes. He said, in that moment when you feel this uh, um, radiant awareness, then let it explode into space. Mm. And that gave some meaning that you don't hold on onto it, yeah. but uh, lose even that and uh, yeah. give up this concept. Yeah. Lovely. And, of course, to let the space explode as well. (laughs) Not even the wonderful dimension of infinite space Mm -hmm. is the abiding place of truth. It's a beautiful, formless realm to experience. And it's a, a precious experience when that temporarily the walls of inner space and outer space can just drop away. And it's quite right what uh, Sogil says there, that uh, this awareness of infinite space is in fact more subtle than uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And less, there is less I in it. It's infinite space. It's not my awareness. It's precious, but it would be a pity to <coughs> land there. Beautiful as it is. Pity to land in this... Infinite space. But that Sogya referred to. Don't let explode this. Yeah, yeah. Explode is a rather is powerful uh, military metaphor. And um, <laughs> I think we might say not get identified with. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Even that explodes into space and openness. Yeah. And not fixed to that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but I think it means that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Space and openness. Yes, yes. Yeah. Nice, good. Yes, please, yes. So, so if we don't land somewhere, yeah. is this what you call intimacy? If we don't land somewhere, is it what I call intimacy? And because um, and I know you're from the Zen tradition here, <laughs> the in the deepest level, I think it's <coughs> appropriate and skillful to use intimacy as a statement of ultimate truth. I think I think it so in light of what I was just saying, intimacy, the best of sense, the deepest of sense, is a statement of what truth is. And in the deeper sense of intimacy, there is no subject and no object, and therefore no gap, and therefore total intimacy. And this intimacy is indestructible. Subject-object is always destructible. It's subject to change. Intimacy is not, in the deeper sense. And I think intimacy is a 
a more profound expression than this language of beyond, which has a little, dare I say, maleness to it, a little animus to it. Intimacy is more appropriate. Beyond always um, also carries the duality and exactly. it's here and beyond. Exactly. And intimacy and is like... And we know what happens when human beings make a beyond. God. Mm-hmm. Allah. Mm-hmm. We know what happens when that we mean. Or the, or the metaphysical democracy, freedom, all these transcendent ideas <coughs> that are deeply problematic for human beings. <coughs> often totally removed from how, from what actually is for us. So I, I think it's, it, it's an enormous challenge either not to go to the religious belief of the beyond and not to settle for the conventional. That's a challenge for us. This intimacy, yes. is it something what we always are experiencing but not realizing? Yeah, yeah. The realization makes the real. But it's, it's always there, and we 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 experience it. We we not feel it, but we we are in it. Yes, it's in the the the, the analogies of the Buddha. Uh, the fish is swimming in the ocean and doesn't realize it. <laughs> the wave called the human being is water and shares the same nature as the, re- as the ocean <laughs> we don't realize it we can't possibly be separate from this intimacy only the thought gives the deluded idea that we are it's not possible it is not possible to be separate from truth Another word, by the way. Yeah. We're about 16 or 18 now, we're doing very well. <laughs> right, sorry, carry on. That um, we only can realize what is present, mm-hmm. but that what we can realize in present is supported by everything which is not present. Yeah. And we can't uh, get our senses. The, the I think it possibly in one of the talks or in a DFP meeting, I can't remember, or whatever. Once, as always, I express concern about taking up something and making it some absolute. So, because I think it's a denial of how things actually are. So one that is sometimes taken up is, um, there is only now. And fixing that as something there. Uh, if it was true, it would have to be dependent of all causes and conditions. If that was true, this now could not possibly change. It would mean, in a rather absurd way, we would be absolutely frozen in time. 
this moment. Because only this moment we'd be completely frozen in it forever. I mean, we'd be in this room forever. God, the thought of it. So, there is no eternal now. There is no just now. This now arises because there's a huge number of causes and conditions that allow this moment to arise. And I think it's healthier and wiser for us as human beings to drop the metaphysics of imposing some significance on something. Just being. Just presence. The power of now. Etc. So that you have a different sense about things and not grasping onto one thing. And spirituality is doing it currently with the moment. It's exaggerating its importance. It is important. It is valuable. It is an open doorway. But to make the moment something uniquely special is to exaggerate its significance. Is to grasp onto something in the field of time. We're interested in liberation, not grasping onto the here and now. Mm. That's the difference. One more. Yes, please, Nicole. You said in this, this, in this relationship between object and subject. Yes. I understood what he's saying. It's, it's um, I would. Sounds to me that that well, it's not. You can't rely on it. It's no. something that's changing, it's going, and exactly. um, it's concepts, it's creating and categorizing, but but it's not, mm. not what what's really involved. But he said, in this relationship between object and subject, you can find that that it's not changing. Yeah, basically, and yes. This is something I I can't really understand because. This relationship object subject is not is not it all. I mean, they're both. It isn't. It isn't how easy. Can I find it when everything I can perceive is just something I make up. <laughs> it's take a slight sideways uh, uh, <coughs> st- step here. Our life, <coughs> it seems, is an ongoing involvement and engagement of subject with object. The world is an object for my interest, including my inner world, and I am the subject of that object of interest. (coughs) And I am the object, right now, of your interest. Whatever. So this dynamic of subject and object, I can appear as a subject, looking at the object, and simultaneously, I can be the object for someone else who is a subject. The subject and object is dependently arising. There is no true subject here. If there was, there would always be subject. And sometimes, subject is object, etc. And I want to look into the subject-object, to repeat a little bit, so don't look outside of it. I'm not going to imagine there's some great truth that's going to descend on me from elsewhere. Somewhere in all of this, there is discovery. And the discovery takes any problem out of the subject-object dynamic. That's all. It just takes the problem out of it. 
And if it takes the problem out of it, my life and my death and my aging and <coughs> my idea, called the subject, small change in life. And to, to take an really in, intimate look into things. And if I see it is totally unproblematic, life is a, a completely unproblematic event. <laughs> I've hit the truth and I'm liberated. I've hit the truth and I'm liberated. And it's right in the event. In total intimacy, there can't be a problem. The wave has no problem with the ocean whatsoever. It's not possible. Because they share the same nature called water. When I had separation called duality, I had a problem. But it's not how things really are. It's how I've constructed. How we have agreed to construct together. Extraordinary thing. Truth reveals the unproblematic. That's all. And it sets us free. The rest is confusion. <laughs> would you say that the truth of that because you said it's not outside yeah. but for me it sounds it is outside <laughs> it's right it's, the wave is not outside the ocean the water of the wave is not outside the water of the ocean and somehow it just and that intimacy the natural expression of the intimacy It's not only truth and freedom, the natural expression of it is love. Is love. Mm -hmm. This is naturally, naturally, I'm talking naturally, it's truest meaning here, naturally emerges. Love must emerge out of it, out of truth. It can't help but emerge. It's not any oh I know the truth, I'm liberated. Oh better I better be loving from now on. <laughs> <laughs> It's choiceless. It's choiceless. And we know when we're in fear, anxiety, worry, negativity, agitation. We know there's something false about it, something not true, something that we're not seeing. We know. This knowing is knowing from a place of what is true. And in tea time. Go on. Go on, one more. This is what I mean with truth outside. Truth outside of this entity that I perceive as myself or mm. I. I mean, it's just something I. It. Sorry, yes. In a way, it's. I miss that. Sorry, yes. So, but if you speak about it before that, somehow I'm sitting here and I'm hearing you say yesterday, it's not about cutting off, it's not about grasping, it's exactly. about becoming intimate yes. with what arises. Yes. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking. Both in the whole world to feel a certain intimacy, deep intimacy with, yeah. in such a way that it touches. So to touch it, 
some place which is authentic and true and as it were such an intimacy <coughs> takes the problem out of the event Actually, you know, I, I, you could say there is no presence, there is no absence. Exactly. Absolutely. There is no presence, there is no absence. No, no, no of course not. It's a what? It's a concept. It's a way of viewing in which something is given some significance, yeah. and therefore it's called existence. Yeah. And once I've given, grabbed it in that way, then I'm going to have some problem with its non-existence. Or vice versa. The intimacy is not like that. All right. Quiet minute. <laughs> Thank you.